Hello and welcome back to the Mind Talk podcast with myself, Edwin. Today's episode, we are going to focus on tennis. Um, we're going to focus more on the coaching side of tennis, which we haven't done on this podcast. And I'm glad that today's guest is someone who's an expert at coaching junior players. My guest also had a fantastic junior career, so it'll be interesting to hear more about that um, and the reasons why he decided not to go pro. So without further ado, Jonathan Stokey, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great, Edwin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. I've had a couple of tennis guests in the past, but um, this is going to be interesting because obviously you do coaching um, as well. So talk to us about the first sporting moment that you remember. God, that's a great question. The first sporting moment I remember. I mean, I would probably stick it with tennis, but I didn't start tennis until I was 10. So my dad played baseball. He was a really good baseball player. He played at USC, Southern California, won a national championship and ended up playing a little bit of like minor league pro baseball. And so I kind of started with baseball, but when I picked up tennis at age 10, I'll never forget. I picked up a racket. I loved it. And just my competitive nature, I was kind of like, well, now what do you do? And someone said, well, you can play state tournaments. So I entered a tournament like the next week. Like right after I picked the racket up, I was like, well, cool. I want to play. Like, is that what you do? And my grandma was in town and my first match ever was like four hours long. Wow. It was just like, oh, we were just pushing the ball back and forth. Like it was (laughs) not great tennis. Um, And I just remember how tired I was. And my grandma was like, I never want to watch that again. Like that's way too long. Um, But yeah, my first tennis match ever is kind of the the first sporting memory I think I can remember. Wow. The four hours. So. At that age, you must have been really competitive to, to want to go straight into competing. Because I know a lot of children, they just want to play sport for fun. But for you to want to like start competition, you must have been competitive as a child. Right. Well, you said they want to play for fun. Like to me, competing is fun. Hmm. So if you said, well, you can go play tennis, but you can hit the ball back and forth in practice or drill. That to me is not fun. That's necessary to get good but yeah. that's not fun to me challenging myself and getting out there and keeping score is the fun part. So that's kind of how I viewed it is like, Hey, this is a sport. I want to enjoy it. The peak of that would be playing in a tournament. Yeah. So that's what I started with. So at that point, did your family, did they support you when you decided you wanted to play tennis? Oh yeah. My dad was my, I had great tennis parents. I mean, I I'm sure every sport you can hear horror stories of parents and, how they get too involved or put too much pressure. My parents were super laid back. The only thing they they would get on me is effort. And they're spending time and money and traveling with me to tournaments. They said, hey, you gotta gotta try. Like that's the minimum. But if you play poorly or whatever, like who cares? It's a recreational sport. And so when I told my dad, hey, I think baseball's done and I'm doing tennis, he's like, cool, good for you. Like I'll help you out. So they they were great with that whole process. And I... That point, did you have a coach or was that, were you just playing without a coach at that stage? I had a coach at the local club that I was at. Mm. Uh, in hindsight, now that I'm a coach, it was a much more informal once a week, maybe, you know, sometimes go to a clinic. It was much more me calling up a friend, playing, and then going to a coach maybe once a week and saying, hey, here's the issue I'm having. Can you help me with this? They give me a little guidance and then I'd go work on it on my own. Yeah. And that's one thing I I know for sure has changed over the last, I guess it's now almost 30 years, is players now always feel like they need a coach. Like there's no such thing as free play anymore. They don't just go out with themselves. It's always with a coach, always supervised. And 
um, I think that can kind of be a detriment to their growth for sure. So for me in the beginning, it was a lot of on my own and just a little bit of guidance. And as I got older, of course, a coach became more involved. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because one of the biggest topics in tennis at the moment is 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 um, courtside um, coaching and stuff like that. And you tend to find a lot of the older players are fully against it and a lot of the, the younger ones don't mind it. Where do you think this came into tennis what, what do you think has brought this into tennis i think it's just because you know it's a it's a big industry every other sport for the most part I, I can't think of another one there probably is but every other sport has coaching you know you're not watching the nba finals and seeing Jokic calling a timeout and being like hey here's the play we should run or whatever they have someone who can help them and re- really all these coaches were already doing it anyway just mm. kind of sneaky and so it was like hey look Every other sport has it. At the end of the day, I my opinion is a coach can make a 5% difference. And in tennis, 5% is quite a bit. Yeah. But the reality is that player is still going to decide the match. So I'm, I don't think there's many times a coach in a tennis match will say something and the player will walk off and go, oh, my God, you know, the coach won me that match because of what they said. So yeah. it's really not that big a deal anyway. It was already yeah. happening. And I think people said, let's just quit the charade and, and make it legal. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about your progress into college um, in tennis. And obviously with the tennis match matches, you have your ups and downs. How did you deal with this, the times when you may have not got what you wanted on the court? Yeah, I mean, if I was saying in the match, I mean, I, I'm a very practical, rational person by nature. And so, you know, my coach would say, hey, you're playing someone your level you know, today that's, that's, we have the same ranking or the same rating. And he goes, how do you think that's going to go? It's probably going to be pretty challenging. It's probably going to be three sets or two very close sets. You might even be down in a couple. None of that should be surprising. So when I would be down three, two, instead of panicking, I'd go, Hey, this is, I mean, it's normal, right? We're supposed to be pushing each other back and forth. And I just happen to be down now. I might end up above in the future. I just have to analyze what's going on in the match. So I always viewed it just very, practically i think some kids are are stunned when they're losing in a match or they're down in a match but that's a very normal part of any match and so that's how i approached it in match and then a very similar approach to losing you know if it was someone around my level i asked a kid once on my team uh when i was coaching at duke i said if you play someone your level and you play them 10 times how many times do you think you should win and to me the correct answer is probably around five because you're about the same and he said six or seven and I said, well, if that's, your, if that's how you view it, you're probably going to be really frustrated a lot because that's almost impossible, right? Like if you were the same level, it's tough to think you're going to win seven. And so that's just kind of how I always viewed it. Sometimes you're going to lose. You look at the top pros on the tennis tour, go Google someone who's 50 in the world. I'll bet you their record's pretty close to 500. And they're one of the best players in the world at the moment. So losing is necessary it happens and you just learn from it and and kind of move on from there so you what you did um tennis in college what made you decide to do that because there's a lot of people that decide to go pro and don't think about the college side of it what made you go down that route so for me it was very obvious i didn't want to play pro tennis I got a wild card into the U.S. Open in 2001 with Rajiv Ram, and he ended up winning the U.S. Open the last two years 
uh, he's my age, which is incredible that he's still doing it and doing it at that level. Uh, but I'll never forget, like, it was a very fun experience. But I, I left and I told my parents, if this is like the pinnacle of tennis, the U.S. Open for me as an American, then this is not what I want to be doing. Because if I got to play all these lower tournaments and travel all over the world just to get here, this was awesome, but it wasn't all I thought it was going to be. And so for me, it was like, hey, I want to go to college. I want to be competitive still, but I also wanted to get a degree in whatever would help me after. And so I was looking at Duke and Stanford and ended up choosing Duke. Both those schools were top 10 academics, top 10 in tennis at the time. Um, and then obviously, ironically, now I stayed in tennis and I'm coaching you know, forever, which I thought I would never do. Um, <laughs> But for me, it was at that time, it was more like I didn't want to be a pro. Mm. Now you see like with Diana Schneider at NC State, she's top 100 and she was playing for NC State this year. It's a much more viable path to becoming a professional since careers are longer. But for yeah. me specifically, it was it was because I knew I didn't want to be a pro at the time. Was that a lot of that to do with some of the sacrifices you have to make? Because there's so much sacrifices that pros have to make from such a young age. Not in terms of training. The The mm -hmm. only sacrifice that I knew I would hate is the travel. I, I did not want to be in a hotel room 30 weeks a year all over the world. And, you know, not all these tournaments are, are super glamorous. And so I was yeah. like, man, I could see myself getting homesick, you know, not in a great mindset. And I, I don't like traveling now to this day. So yeah. that was that was the main reason I was like, if I'm not going to make it, it's just going to be because I can't handle the travel. If if ATB tour only happened in the United States and I only had to yeah. drive places and occasionally fly, I probably could have done great. But I, I think the world travel would have got me. What, what do you think gave you the strong will and, and mindset to be firm with your decision? Because there's a, there's a lot of pros that you see out there that you can tell that's probably a problem for them as well and it affects them mentally the traveling side of things what what made you decide to go with that because there's temptations that come with the, with the money that they're throwing at people to just go to these things when they clearly in their mind that's not the life for them yeah i i think it's just like my nature i'm a very decisive person so if i think of two courses of action and i go hey i can uh not play pro and figure out whatever I want to do, or I can travel the world. And there's some positives to that being a pro player would have been fun in some ways, but the travel would have been miserable for me. And I go, which one do I want to do? And honestly, for me, it's that's always easy. I was like, you know, I don't really want to do it. And it's not that that, that choice would have been all bad or the choice I made was all great, but I never really look back and regret any decision. You make your best choice at the time and you realize you can't be perfect, but you know, what is it that we're supposed to flip a coin and when it's in the air, if it's heads, you do one, if it's tails, you do the other. And what you're hoping for when it's in the air is what you should choose. Yeah. I've always, I've always been very clear on what I would like to do. And I basically put my happiness first. So in that choice, I go, what's going to make me more happy or what do I think will make me more happy? It's probably not playing pro. And so it's boom, easy decision. Move on from there. You, you mentioned briefly um, in this pod um, that coaching wasn't something that you thought you were going to be doing. What led you into coaching? Interesting. You know, I had a lot of good coaches. I like competing. I like sport. I thought it was challenging. You know, for me, like I said, my contemporary Rajiv has gone on. He's been number one in the world. 
if I could get over the traveling aspect of pro tennis, I think I would have had a chance, maybe not to be quite as good, who knows, but I think I could have succeeded as a pro. That would come down to me pushing myself, which in a way I think is easy. You tell yourself to do something and you're going to do it or you're lazy and you don't, but that's up to you. You control you. The real challenge to me is I see a player and I have to get inside their mind, inside that puzzle and figure out what motivates them, what words I need to use to get them to swing the right way, what drills and what order. That whole puzzle for me was so interesting. And I was like, man, if I can help this kid or this adult, whatever, figure out their game, man, number one, what a challenge that is. And then once I do it, they are so happy and they are so thankful that I was a part of that journey. And that feeling is everything. So the puzzle piece of it, solving that puzzle, and then kind of being involved with that person in their journey, because tennis is a solo sport. And so I was like, man, if I win, I'm celebrating with myself and maybe my, yeah. you know, maybe my coach, but I want to be a part of someone else's journey. And so that's kind of what pushed me in that direction. So once you, you made that step and you started coaching, what were some of the biggest challenges you found in the early stages of your coaching? I'm sure you can already tell, but I'm very just practical and rational. And, you know, when I get coached, my wife is a golf coach. And so I just go, hey, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Like, I have no thought. You're the, you're the professional. I'm not. So I'll do it. That's not how most people think. I don't think like most people. And now I have to, most players are very emotional in tennis. That makes no sense to me. And so it's very hard for me to get inside their mindset and go, man, what is making you so angry? Like you missed a forehand, like Nadal misses forehands. It's all good. But yeah. that's not how they see it. And so I have to really challenge myself to get in their mindset, try to feel a little bit of what they feel so that I can then communicate properly and kind of set the drills up to, to help them get out of that mode. But yeah, feeling the emotion of a player is super challenging for me. Do, do you have to adapt to, to every single player that you have in terms of how you help them in the mental side of things? Because some people probably need to be more shouted at. Some people need to be spoken to in a more soft manner. Do you have to adapt to each person you coach? Absolutely. And that, that's the fun part of it. If it was the same for everybody, I'd be bored to death because I'd go up. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, it's just step one, then step two, then step three. Uh, I just had Gil Reyes, who's Andre Agassi's old trainer on my podcast, and he said that if you treat every player the same, you'll be 50% wrong 100% of the time. And <laughs> I don't know how I got those percentages, but it's right. Like if I just, if I treat everybody the same, some people will love my message, some people won't, and they're yeah. not going to get anything out of it. And so you have to look at each individual physically, emotionally, how they process, how they learn and treat them as an individual. And then, like I said, that's the fun part is that it's different every time you coach someone, that whole process is a little different and that's what makes it challenging and fun. In, in terms of coaching in, in loads of sports, people, coaches tend to have like philosophies in terms of how they want their teams to play. Tennis is a little bit different because you're coaching individuals. Do you have to have your own philosophy or do you adapt to whoever you're coaching and how you how you approach your teaching? Yeah, I think, you know, tactics and strategies are very unique. I was a servant volleyer. You don't see that a lot these days. Um, there are principles within each tactic. I think generally speaking, 
my philosophy would be you play to your strengths and you play to your personality. And so some kids are super defensive, but you can be a great defensive player and succeed. And then if that's how they are and that's how they operate, okay, here are some basic rules that a defensive player usually succeeds with. And then let's say you get a very aggressive personality and they, they're like me, they want to come to the net a lot. Cool, we can play that way too. Here are some general rules that help a game style like that. And so I try to do my best to let the player kind of tell me how they want to play. And if it's something I think is really bad for them, I go, man, I don't see it. I'll kind of go, okay, let's, here's my stance on it. I think you should maybe do something different. Let's try it your way and we'll see how it goes. Because I've been wrong before, you know, and let's, let's just see. And you can kind of give me feedback and tell me what you think. And a lot of times we'll end up finding kind of like that middle ground. Um, but yeah, it's tough in tennis to just say, hey, you always play this way. You always do these things because each individual is so unique and you can win many different ways. So to, to put a kid in a box and tell them to go one way or another, I think can be kind of damaging to their, their career. As a coach, you help a lot with the mindset. Do, is there, do they also see sports psychs as well? Or would you be the person that most of that information will come from? You end up doing a little bit of everything as a tennis coach. I, if, if kids have a major block or something I feel highly unqualified for, I usually encourage a parent and be like, hey, you should probably see a professional. Like, here's what I'm telling them. I read about it all the time, but I'm not a sports psychologist. And so I'm always like, in my mind, am I saying the right thing? Am I saying the wrong thing? I'd rather have a professional speak to them. Now, if it's just little, you know, hey, I'm nervous before my match, something like that. that that's something I'll help them with for sure. Here, here are my experiences. Here are some little things I used to do that helped me. Let's try them out. Let's see how that works for you. Give me feedback. And, and usually that stuff works itself out. But, you know, when it comes to conditioning, I encourage them to at least visit a strength coach. You know, I know that I did conditioning, but that doesn't make me a strength coach. And I've learned sports psychology doesn't make me a sports psychologist. So just depending on the need of the kid, I would encourage that. But little, you know, anecdotal stories of this is how I feel. This is my mindset. I'll help them with that a fair amount. When it comes to that side of things, and there's, you mentioned the strength and conditioning coach, do you collaborate with them um, or is this something they, they, have, they would have to do separately in terms of they focus on getting the, um, the strength and conditioning coach, the psychologist, or do you speak to those people? It's more challenging as an individual private coach. You know, at Duke, when I was yeah. coaching at, at college, of course, you have your strength trainer there and you say, hey, you know, so-and-so over here is having trouble moving laterally and they're getting tired at this point and, and this is the feedback. This is what I'd like you to work on with them. And they do some drills and they say, hey, keep an eye out for this when he's on the court. You know, something like that. Now, yes, there's communication, but there's less, you know. So mm -hmm. if I teach a kid privately and she comes and visits me a couple days a week and on her own she visits a strength coach, I might be communicating to that strength coach through her. I might say, hey, yeah. when you go see him, tell him this. Or depending on how, how often I work with a kid, I might actually speak with that coach or that psychologist. Um, but yeah, that's when it works the best, right, is when it's collaborative. So there has to be some communication. Otherwise, there's improvement, but you're probably not maximizing it. Is, is there much difference in coaching in a college to coaching someone private? 100%, yeah. Um, I mean, I coach boys, and now I basically coach junior girls. Um, so the boy versus girl difference. But 
one coach told me it was like dry clay versus wet clay. You know, when, when they're 20 to 22, it's a little tougher to mold them and get them to change. When they're 13, 14, 15, they're kind of an open book and they're receptive. And I've definitely noticed the younger kids are a little easier to mold and improve and change. And when they kind of came to college, of course, they can still improve. But those improvements were much more minimal because they're farther along in their journey. Um, and then you got, I, I found it interesting. I mean, the 22-year-old male college player had more of an ego than, say, the 14-year-old junior girl. Um, and they're, they're much more willing to listen and they want to make their coach happy, whereas a 22-year-old boy knows everything and, you know, my coach mm -hmm. is a moron and I, I've, I've got the world <laughs> solved and I was exactly the same way. And so I've noticed that difference as well. Is there any time where you have to decide that, you know what, it's probably best that you work with someone else and not with me? Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned that to parents a fair amount. And it's usually the only time I would say that about a kid is they're not putting in the effort. So I always have to have their full engagement. They're responsible for their energy, their motivation. And if a kid is consistently not showing up ready to work, that just kind of becomes babysitting. It's just an hour that I'm spending with a kid and they're not improving. And so I might tell the parent, hey, you know, I, I never want to bail on a kid because I know that coach-player relationship is important. But I say, hey, you know what? Your kid's not really bringing any motivation. Maybe encourage them. If it doesn't improve, then we might need to go a different direction. Like this is not how I'd like to spend my, my time is kind of treading water with your kid with zero improvement. There has been on occasion one or two times where, you know, I invest fully in a kid. They are fully invested. And after six or nine months or maybe a year, the improvement really isn't what I thought it would be. And I feel a responsibility to that parent and the kid to let them know, hey, maybe you should look into another voice and see if that works. Because I'm trying like crazy and you're trying like crazy. And it's been a substantial amount of time and we're not seeing the results. And so almost bringing like, not an assistant coach, but like a consultant, you know, I'm not like firing myself there, but just going, Hey, I, I want you to know, like, I see this the same way you do. Yeah. And I'm sure you're frustrated because you're investing. And sometimes it just takes time, but sometimes you need someone to say the same thing in a different way. Yeah. And that's why, you know, at a college team, when you have multiple coaches, that's the benefit is you all have the same message, but one says it a different way and it clicks for that kid. And so I might encourage them to do that, but yeah, I mean, that's a it's a very challenging thing and something you never want to admit as a coach, but it does happen for sure. Is there ever times where you see the improvement in someone and you feel like it's going well, but then their parents decide that they want to pull them away? Because you see it with you know, at a high level where some people are changing their coaches <laughs> like like all the time. <laughs> have, you, have you ever been in that situation? All the time, all the time. And I like I said, I'm a very rational, practical person. So... I had this happen about four months ago and I said, Oh, you, you don't think your kid is as good this year as they were last year. Okay. Let's look, let's look at their rating. Let's look at their record. Let's look at how many times they've beaten a player above them. Uh, I also keep statistics for players. I go, let's look at their, let's look at their stats. Oh, they're serving better. Oh, they're, they're doing this every measurable way they have improved. So, if you don't think that, that's okay. It's probably an emotional response to maybe a bad result individually or whatever. But 
in any measurable stance, they have improved. And honestly, usually when I show them facts like that, they come around quickly. They go, oh, yeah, maybe maybe it's not as bad as I thought. And, and for sure, the players, that works pretty well. With a tennis player, once they step out on the court, your coaching is done for that period of time. So what's the biggest thing you think they need mentally once they're on the court? Man, that's good. For me, it would be resilience. You know, it's... You, Nadal at the French is the most dominant sporting achievement for me in the world. What is it, 14? I think it's 14 times he's won it. Um, he's won 56% of the points he's played. And if you can't handle, I win one, you win one. I win one, you win one. I win two, you win three. If you can't handle all these things, you can't. It doesn't matter how good your strokes are. Um, of course, there's so many great mental attributes, but to me, that's the biggest thing. We do a lot of drills, and they're trying to get to 50 uh, with our kids, where you know they might have to hit it to a certain part of the court, and if they do, they get a point. But if they miss it, they go back one, and it's like, man, they'll get to five, then they go to zero, then they get to ten, then they get to three, and they're just constantly dealing with these setbacks. And to me, that's just such a valuable skill in a, in a tennis match where, you know, you could be out there for an hour, lose the first set 7-6, and you are no closer to your goal than when you started the match. I mean, that's a devastating blow in a way. And you have to be able to just take that and go, hey, next point, let's go. Um, yeah, so resilience is key. Any way you can build the resilience in an athlete for a tennis player is, is massive. What, what do you do when you have someone who has that resilience and you can see they're a fighter but the results are just not going their way and obviously when the results are not going their way confidence gets affected what are the type of things you would say when you you are dealt with a tennis player that's going through that i think the first thing is you got to figure out how that player gets confidence so some players are super outcome based and even if they played great and lost in a doll at the french open they would lose confidence because they lost I personally wouldn't. I always went on performance, but you have to figure out where they're getting their confidence from and then figure out kind of why are they losing? You know, for me, it's it's always been like a test. It's what's the issue? Oh, we're losing because of our serve. We're losing because of our footwork. We're losing because we're not playing the pressure points well. And then you go just set a plan to solve that problem. And you go, hey, I was losing because of this. That is no longer an issue. I think good results are probably in my future. Um, and so that's always been the simplest thing for me is just figure out why the losing is happening and then solve that problem or improve that issue. One coach, uh, he coached at Clemson a long time ago, and for players that were super outcome-based, if they were losing a lot, he would say, hey, I'm not going to take your spot in the lineup. I'll leave you there. But before the next match, you have to win 50 sets or 20 sets, depending on how many days they had. But you can play anybody. And so if you're playing the local club adult, I don't care. Just go beat them 6-0, 6-0, 6-0, get seven sets in, and just get used to winning again. And that he said that worked wonders for people who just saw it as black and white. I won, I'm good. I lost, I'm bad. Getting practice wins in. So a lot of people don't like to play people worse than them. But if you're super outcome-based, that can actually build a ton of confidence if you just get used to winning in practice. Is there ever been times when you've had someone where mentally they were lacking so much, but by the time they finished working with you, there was so much that they had gained in their armor? Yeah, I, I would say there's a girl I'm working with now. She's about to go to Michigan. Um, the hat, I mean, I, I went to Duke. I don't 
care about Michigan, but but I support <laughs> her. I might as well have her her face on the hat. Um, but yeah, when she got here, she was very emotional, could get super angry, very negative, and we're now what about eighteen months in, and she's very calm. She's very process driven. You know, obviously, she still has a little bit of those things, but she's improved so so much in every way. But I think the biggest way for me is is her mindset on the court. And I can tell she's just happier, which at the end of the day, she's going to play tennis. She's going to graduate. If she decides to play pro great. And then she's going to put a racket down and all you had were your experiences. And so the fact that I know day to day, she's happier, healthier, like that is super rewarding. Even though she has improved as a player, that's, that's what I'm most proud of with her. John, this has been a great episode. Do you have a podcast as well? Um, tell people where they can find your podcast. Yeah, it's on it's on everything. It's on Apple, Spotify. It's called Baseline Intelligence. It's mainly about tennis. Uh, you know, some top pros, some coaches. Um, it just kind of get in the mindset of them. A lot of them, a lot of this stuff we've talked about today has been in there. But um, yeah, hosting a podcast, I'm, I'm sure you you know it's it's fun. It can be scary. It can be a little challenging. Um, you know, we've already been dropped out four times with the, yeah. with the connection <laughs> that can cause anxiety. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a blast for me. And so, yeah, if anyone's interested in hearing from the best tennis players in the world, they should check it out. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on again today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man.